Shall we pray? Our Father, we are grateful that we can come into your presence so easily, knowing who you are, the creator of the universe. We thank you for this opportunity to learn. We thank you for John and his wisdom that he brings to us. And we pray that blessing upon us this morning. In my name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, uh, does everyone have a handout? Let's make sure about that first. Uh, up at the top, we have a word that has become very popular in our culture today. If you listen, when people talk about meta, 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 they use it in many different ways. So another modern way that's used uh, is metadata. Have you heard this phrase before? What's, what's meta? The new, hmm? Uh, yeah, I mean, it does have a connotation, of, uh, it has a connotation of above or beyond. So, like when they use it in uh, computer terms, metadata is data about the data that just got collected. Who did it? When did they do it? How did they process it? So it's, it's a further analysis. But we can just say beyond. It's a Greek preface. Now, when we put this on there, morphosis, and come up with metamorphosis, <laughs> what do we have there? Uh, who said that? A little bit louder. A transition, a change. Beyond change, a change into another form, because this word in Greek, morphe, means the form. So a metaform is the form beyond the current form. What does that sound like? Uh, I, well, I, tell us what abiogenesis is. <laughs> Yeah, one creature coming from another creature, but it's another species. Now, that's what I'm asking all of us, and I'm thinking about it myself as I work through this. Is it realistic? Can you speak in the 21st century? Can you use terminology like this? Can you say with a straight face, yeah, God is engaged at the current time and taking us through a process of spiritual evolution. Can you say this? Sure, Jack says. Well, that, that, that's it. Okay, I'll see you guys next week. <laughs> Morning. Uh, well, I, I'm just touching base with you because I don't want to, you know, jump too far. But yeah, I mean, I think this is a wonderful construct in the New Testament. So that's what we're going to talk about today. The metamorphosis. There's some synonym, synonyms. I almost said synonyms. <laughs> synonyms that are like metamorphosis that I will also share with you. And so what we want to look at today is a review of the three groanings that we left off last week. And I want to make sure that we pull that Romans 8 passage with us. And then we're going to jump into a brief overview of the process of metamorphosis in the New Testament. And then on the second page, we're going to get into more detail on something that is like the climax of this theme. And that is the transformation of our bodies into bodies that are like Jesus's body, uh, frequently called the resurrection. But I want to start using a different term in the 21st century because when you say resurrection to modern people, uh, I'm afraid it does not count, uh, connect with them the way that the New Testament really means. So I'm just going to use the term transformation today. Okay, so let's start at the beginning, and I'd like you to look these passages up with me. Uh, there are Bibles on the table, and we want to find Romans 8.22, 8.23 and 24, and 8.25. And I want to show you, you know, a literary pattern, but also a beautiful truth that sets up this whole idea of transformation. So we have here, I'll start off reading in verse 22, uh, and we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pain, pains of childbirth until now. So we, we talked about this last week when I shared with you this idea of the maternal matrix 
the creation, this world, functioning almost like a giant female womb that God is bringing out from it life. Now, is there a place in the Older Testament where we have this maternal portrait of God uh, shown to us very clearly, but sometimes it has to be pointed out before we really recognize it? Can you think of a place in the Older Testament where God is pictured as a maternal figure? Uh, well, Mary comes to mind right now because it's Christmas, and she's ultimately the, um, and we're going to talk about her next week, in fact. Let's look at the incarnation. But uh, some play. come on in. You're not late. You can sit with these uh, young people here. They'll help you out. Uh, can you think of some place in the Older Testament? But at the, how about at the beginning? Yes, sir. I knew you'd know this. I knew you'd know this. Sophia, Proverbs 9, the personification. Wisdom is personified as a, as a woman. Folly is also personified as a woman. Yes, and they're speaking to the human race. There's a, there's a good one. Going back deeper, Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the spirit of God... You guys haven't studied Genesis for a while. <laughs> and the Spirit of God hovered on the waters. Would it, see, I, you have to have it pointed out to you before it really hits you. What's the picture here? Of a giant bird. And then later on, the Holy Spirit does get uh, typified or shown in, a, in an analogical fashion to have dove-like characteristics. But here we have the Spirit of God almost like a big mother bird doing what? Sitting on creation and theoretically what? Hatching. Hatching, pulling out from the material everything that God wants to bring from it. And of course, we now see what? That that process to a certain extent is still going on because this creation, Paul says, is what? Groaning. Do you remember what it's groaning for? Uh, yes, the redemption of our bodies, uh, and uh, that is put under the rubric, if you want to put it under a Christological idea, what? We're going to be, not just our bodies are not going to just be redeemed, but we're going to be what? What does Romans 8.29 tell us? That we're going to be conformed to the very image of Christ. That's the full redemption. Right? Is that, did I give you the right verse? 8.29? Okay, so the creation is groaning. God's using the creation, the material creation, like a mother to bring forth creatures that are eventually, their destiny is to be conformed to Christ. And then what's the second groaning? Next verse. And uh, we, there's the mic there. Um, I guess I'll read this one too. We've we got to get that mic in operation. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption. I'm going to change the language. It does say sons, but it means children. Adoption is children, the redemption of our bodies. So who's groaning here? Those people who, he says, have the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits. Well, this is a construct from the Jewish Bible. The first fruits were the first spring vegetables that sprang up in the uh, spring. Uh, based on that, when spring vegetables come, uh, built into the Jewish construct, that was the beginning of what? What could be counted on as the full harvest that came at the end. So if God is faithful and brings forth the spring vegetables, then you can count. And in an agrarian society, this is crucial. You've got to be able to count that your crops are going to come in. So first fruits were always the symbol and the guarantee and the promise of God that what's going to happen? 
you will have Thanksgiving this year. <laughs> well, they didn't call it that. They called it Feast of Weeks. So at the end of the year, the harvest comes in. So first fruits then becomes this construct in the New Testament reserved usually for Jesus. He's called the first fruits. We're going to see that in a minute. But now Paul switches the model a little bit and says that the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of what? The first fruits of what? Well, it, we're given the Holy Spirit as the first fruits guarantee of what? Yes, of the full harvest at the end. So if you want to look at your life in an agrarian term, where are you right now? Loosely speaking. <laughs> Wilting in the summer, that's great. Uh, you're, uh, you're just coming alive. I know we, uh, I'm getting older too, but we're just coming alive. It's the beginning of the first fruits. The spirit in us has uh, caused this inside. So what are we, we're groaning for what? The, the, the uh, completion, the redemption of our bodies, the confirmation. Uh, do, you, do you actually ever do this? Do you ever feel yourself groaning? Oh. <laughs> when you get out of bed. <laughs> Well, Christians are, there's something God puts in us that precludes us from becoming totally in love and infatuated with this particular world. Uh, this is the grace of God that comes to us when Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Father come to live in us. We come to realize, even if it's not totally logical, but we understand it emotionally, intuitively, on a deep level, that this isn't all that God has for us. So then it's legitimate to want to say at times. I mean, you don't, you don't want to give this too much of a head. Uh, you don't want to get it out of control. But it's okay sometimes to say, I can't wait until it's over. <laughs> no, no, not over. I can't wait until it really begins. This is just a temporary, it's very significant, it's very meaningful, but it's only the beginning. Okay, so Christians are groaning, so we got two groans. Creation, so we're groaning in harmony with uh, creation. We want this childbirth to come off, and we want the baby to come forth fully formed, which is us conformed to Christ. And then the third groaning, verse 26. Likewise, yes, this is the groaning of the Holy Spirit. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought to or should. Why not? <clears throat> Here the Bible tells you and I that we don't know what to pray for as we ought to. We know what to pray for. And if you blather on to God any way that I do... You can find all kinds of things to say. But he's not talking about just blowing out whatever's on your mind. What's he saying? We don't know how to pray. Why don't we know how to pray for things as we should? We can't see the whole picture. It's like asking a baby in the womb to imagine what life is going to be about and pray for their future life when they haven't even truly started it. So God's doing something, and God's trying to tell us what God is doing to change us into the image of Christ. But when you think about that, how do you pray for, I mean, you can say, Jesus, please change me. But in specifics, he says, we don't even really know how to pray for that. So to help us in our weakness because of our finiteness and because we can't see the whole picture, what does he say that God is doing inside of every Christian? The Holy Spirit's inside of you doing what? Look carefully. Groaning. How? Wordlessly. So, uh, although this text is used sometimes by people that practice what is called glossolalia or tongues, you can see clearly from the context this is not talking about tongues. If it is talking about tongues, then you'd have to come to the conclusion that what? That... Um, Creation is speaking in tongues, and uh, then every Christian is speaking in tongues, and that the Holy Spirit is also speaking in tongues. 
Well, that doesn't make any sense. Come on in. Please. You're not late. I mean, you're embarrassed, but that's, <laughs> that's part of it. I mean, I don't... We do that so you feel comfortable. Come on in. So we've got three groanings, and the third one says it's without words. So the Holy Spirit's not speaking any words. The Holy Spirit is doing what inside of us? It's almost like the Holy Spirit is undergoing the birth pangs. The Holy Spirit is groaning in the birth pangs. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us inside of us without words, with groans, to what end? What's the Holy Spirit praying for you and me? Look, look into the context. What's, what's he praying for? What's the whole big picture here? That we will become changed into the image of Christ. So ask yourself, when you, and I'm asking myself too, I'm looking in the mirror. When we're, when we're talking about the concerns of our lives, the, what's God's main concern? That we become fully conformed into the image of Christ. Now you'll see how one of the great texts of the New Testament is frequently misused. Because look at 8.28 now. For we know that all things work together for good for those that love God, for those are call, who are called according to God's purpose. Now, if you put that in a promise book, divorced from its context, you could come away thinking, well, what the Bible really means is what? Uh, God always works out everything so that we're, like, really happy, right? That's a cheery thought. Even when bad things happen, oh, it's okay because God's going to... But that's not really what he's talking about here. He's saying that all the all things that God is working together are what? Foreknowledge, predestination. Look at the text with me. What else? Foreknowledge, predestination. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those are the all, the all things that God's working together for, for good. And what's the good? to be conformed to Christ. Now see, that's really hard for us humans because for us on this level, the good is what? Many times. Happy, happy. Um, where we live. How our career is going. The goofball that we work for. Just a joke. What? <laughs> oh, no. Right? Yeah, we're, we're enmeshed in the present. God's get, trying to open up our minds to, to show us the big picture. So you have these three groanings. They're all groanings of childbirth. The child, the children to be born are you and I, and we're going to be brought forth into this place where we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. Yes, sir? Well, it's a, it's a concession that Paul is trying to make to Roman culture because that, uh, adoptions were a big deal in that culture. And, and once, once done, uh, there was no distinction between the biological and the adopted child. I mean, it was a big production in Roman culture. So what he's trying to convey to us is, even though at one point we have had a sense of alienation from God, especially he's writing to Jews and Gentiles, uh, Gentiles who had previously been told by some people and given the impression not purposely but inadvertently by some Jewish people that what Gentiles were not able to come so now Paul's trying to make the point what when God adopts you as a child you could even be an Italian and be brought in <laughs> I said that for Damaretta I'm just in a funky mood today sorry now does that make sense okay so What's the good? In God's mind. Conform to Christ. Conform to Christ. Yeah, and this is the opposite approach to it. What he's saying is that the predestined pre-new, pre-new up to glorified. Which 
Right. We want the material physical. We define good a certain way. This is God's good. We have our human goods. Do you remember what the master said? And this is a very confusing text for some people. Maybe this will help us. The rich young man. There are some people who deny the deity of Jesus based on this text. So this rich young man comes and falls at the feet of the master and he says, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him a curious thing. What does he say to him? Why are you calling me good? No, he says, why why do you call me good? There's only one good. That's God. So on the surface of things, it looks like Jesus at that point is denying his deity. Oh, we'll seize that verse if we don't want to believe that and milk it out for that theology. But that's not what he was trying to get to the young man's head at all. What was the young man's good? And what did the master ask him in particular? Not the rest of you rich people, just this guy. <laughs> what did he ask this, mas- this kid, this young guy to do? Give it all up. Everything. Now, again, that's not supposed to be taken as a mantra for everybody in the whole world to give you money. But that kid needed to give that money up because why? Because that was his God. He, he needed to have his idea of the good switched. So what the master was trying to do is get him to stop thinking about me, the, the teacher that's right in front of you, and think about God in the ultimate sense. He wasn't denying his own deity. So Dan, that's, I would say, a good portrait of all of us. We have our good that we bring to Jesus, and then we say, with this in our pocket, we would like to have eternal life. And frequently what has to go on there is that there has to be a transfer of good and a buy-in on our part. Ugh. Okay, I'm going to give up. I'll give my whole self to you so that you can make me into the image of Christ. And I can say from experience, and so can you, that a lot of times that doesn't feel too good. <laughs> right? Yes. Again, that's true, too. Yeah. What, what must I do? What, how can I get it and earn it and possess it? Nothing. Even the, the giving up was just like, it's like saying, how can I run faster in this 100-yard dash? Easy, take your combat boots off and get track shoes on and get rid of all your extra stuff. That's all he was saying to him. Get rid of that. It's not because he was going to earn it. Right. Good point. Okay, so you see the good? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Makes it go down a little bit easier, right? Yeah. Yeah, I agree totally. Okay, so now let's switch gears here. Let's get a big let's look let's look understand right now. We now know what we're going to be like. We're gonna be conformed. But let's just look at three Greek words to help us go through the big idea of the New Testament. I'm on the front page of your handout, starting at the bottom, and I want you to find Titus three five. Now, I'm sure all of you are aware that different denominations use differing words to try to convey what the New Testament is talking about. And you're going to see an example of this in this text, Titus 3.5. Actually, I'm going to have to start at verse 4, although the the things I want you to see are in verse 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, Suzanne, right? (laughs) But according to God's own mercy, now here we go, by the what? Washing of regeneration, that's number one, and the renewal, of the Holy Spirit, that's number two in that verse. So, 
Down at the bottom, Titus 3.5, I gave you the Greek word. Now cover up the first five letters, six letters, and you can see what? Genesia? Ah! Genesis! What does Genesis mean? To, it doesn't mean in the beginning. It means to um, bring forth something, the, the origins of something. Okay? That's what Genesis means. The first words are in the beginning, but Genesis literally means in Greek to bring forth something. So this word with the prefix on it means generation again. To be regenerated. Do Presbyterians use terms like this? Regeneration? We salute it, we don't say it. We <laughs> okay, now what's, what's something that other Christians in our culture uh, use in place of that? But it's the same concept. Born again. The, born again. So remember, in the late 60s, early 70s, all through the 80s, the controversy was every week on Phil Donahue and all these talk shows that have somebody on there who was, in quote, a born-again Christian, and then they would say whatever they said and believed, and people then built up this caricature pretty soon in our culture that born-again Christians are what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it did come across, I think, that, I think that notion did come across. Some people thought, and probably some born-again Christians did convey it. I'm better than you because I'm born again. I'm sure that happened. What else? Nuts. Nuts. It's like, what you, born again. You know, it's like weird. Uh, and there was this big cleavage. Now, all the time that that was going on in uh, the Methodist church and the, in the Catholic Church and uh, the, um, even the Presbyterian Church, even they were using this term when they would read the Bible and preaching, they would say regeneration. And it, guess what? Same meaning as born again. It's just a synonym. So what does it mean to regenerate something? To start over or to put new life into it to cause it to come to life into a, a, on another level and to go higher. So when the Bible talks about being born again, born from heaven, regenerated, it's all talking about the same thing. It's that event, that time, that period when a person uh, embraces Christ as Savior and God sends the Holy Spirit into them and takes their dead spirit and causes it to come to life. Does it make sense? That's regeneration. Who does this thing? The Holy Spirit does it. We, don't, we can't do it. You can't regenerate yourself. So it's a gift of God. It's God's grace that comes based on our faith in Christ. We become regenerated. Boom. It starts. The life of God comes into you. Then when that life of Christ comes into us, then what does he say? Regeneration. And what's the next word? In Titus 3.5. Regeneration. <clears throat> okay, so a point in time you get regenerated. The life of God comes into you, and then he says you go through this period of renewal. In other words, <clears throat> what do we call that in theological terms? The process by which we are being renewed. Sanctification, Sanctification yes. This is becoming more like Jesus over time this, what do we call this in fancy theological language? That event. Ah, uh, well, yeah. That's not as fancy. <laughs> Justified. Justified. You're made right with God. God declares you to be right with God because you put faith in Christ. It's a legal construct. The judges will understand this. You pronounce somebody what? Sometimes, right? Not guilty. Not guilty. I understand that. 
But one of these days, you're going to have an experience. God's grace is going to open. It will truly be a time when you can say not guilty from the heart and mean it. And that person then is going to walk out of there what? Justified. That's what God does for us in Christ. Then starts this long process in life of becoming more and more sanctified, and it leads ultimately. Now, would you find 2 Corinthians 3.18, please? 2 Corinthians 3.18, and I want to tease this out. 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's a great, I'm sorry, I just have to pick them out of context, but uh, we all with an open face, what he he's comparing himself to Moses. Moses covered his face when he talked to God. He's saying now that we're in Christ, we don't have to do that anymore. We can open ourselves completely to God. We all with open face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being what? What's your text say? Transformed. Transformed. No, notice carefully what it says. From what? One stage of glory to another and the Greek word that's used there is metamorphosis. And in nature, the biggest example of this I even gave you a picture of is what? The but how a butterfly comes to be. So now you are to look at your life, and I'm supposed to look at my life, as where are we? If you wanted to liken yourself to a little caterpillar, where are you? <laughs> You're still crawling around on the ground, yeah. But the fact that you're crawling means you're justified. And now God's doing what to us? Turning us from little worms into eventually, and, and in this lifetime, the wings are not going to completely sprout. There will be little nubs on your back. There will be little antennae coming out. You're still in the chrysalis stage. So from one stage of glory to another, this is the entire... So God is doing what? God is evolving human beings who are in Christ and changing them. And this is really something I think is very important. And it's really hard to teach because it makes it sound like Christians think they're better than other people. But just in terms of our humanity, if a person is a Christian, are they different than a not yet Christian? Are they different? I didn't say better. You can argue that case that they might be. But are they different? You should, if you're a Christian in their right mind. But, I mean, a Christian in their right mind should understand that they got nothing going for them except the grace of God. But, unfortunately, we're not always in our right mind. So, are Christians different than not yet Christians? Okay, so some, what have, we have pride, prideful Christians. I've been proud in my life, so we'll, we'll take that one. We'll lay that one aside. What, is, what makes us different? We have something living inside of us. I shouldn't have said something. We have someone living inside of us that makes the human experience for the Christian qualitatively different than what the not yet Christian is going through. Do you, do you see that? So in other words, if you really want to think the way I'm thinking, God has already done what in this present time? Taken the next evolutionary step. Guess, that, guess who that next evolutionary step is? Who is that next evolution? Well, Christ was the first one, yes. But who's the, who is the next evolutionary step? It's you. So, what God is doing is doing evolution right in front of us and evolving human beings into one stage of glory to another. Not going to be perfect in this lifetime unless you're a Methodist. <laughs> but we'll leave that aside too. 
happy for them if they reach it. But for most people, what happens is, is that you can become, and people that come up here and really just give Christ everything, what do we call them? Eccentric. Eccentric. <laughs> no, no, no. We call them uh, saints. And we say, oh, oh, they're like, well, yeah, they're different, but the only thing that made them different, if they are a saint, is what? They allowed God to have God's way with them, and God transformed them, and yes, true saints are sometimes very eccentric, because God's changed them so much. What did the master say? That which is uh, treasured in the eyes of humans is what to God? Do you remember him saying this? That which is valuable in the eyes of humans is an abomination in the eyes of God. Now, that sounds harsh, but what does he mean? When, when you're left to yourself and you're just looking at things from a human point of view, the way that you're going to think is way different than if you allow Christ to have his way with you. So we get, uh, yes, sir. And now, there's somebody else back there that wanted to say something too, so I'm sorry I didn't get you in time. I'm listening. Oh, okay. You know, before we go on to the next step, you know, crying has always been a real difficult thing for me. My coaches, my teachers tell me, take pride in your work and so forth. And then you go to church, church and don't take pride in your work and so forth. So, uh, straighten that out a little bit more. <laughs> All right, well, c- could you go over to um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 for a second? There you see one of the great texts of the New Testament. Uh, Something to the effect of um, knowledge puffs up. Are you there with me? Is that the right verse? Knowledge puffs up. What verse is that? Uh, Six. I mean, uh, one. 8-1. 8-2. I'm sorry. I was off by one. Okay. Knowledge puffs up. Agape, which is what, I know it says charity, but love. But it means agape love. Edifies. Okay, so this is a play on words. Uh, When you say somebody's puffed up, I think it comes from the animal kingdom. When animals get uh, ready to fight and stuff, uh, my dogs do this. They blow out their hair. Have you ever seen dogs do that? Or other animals will, uh, frogs sometimes will, <laughs> so you, when you put a lot of knowledge into most humans, what happens? <laughs> they puff up. So there, now look at you. What are you? What kind of a human you are you, Jerry? Obviously, you're smart enough to go to medical school. That's put, I, I, that puts you up in the what? The five percentile, okay? So people like you that are are smart, intelligent, and know a lot, and have the opportunities. Unfortunately, as, we, as you go through life, it's very easy to do what? Think, I did this. <laughs> That's why God put you with her, yes. So, now, let's, what's the other side? Okay, to be really smart is a good thing, but it's also got a lot of dangers to it. It's an easy step into pride. But agape does what? It builds people up. That's what edification is. So um, you can't help it that you're smart. So the the one thing that you don't want to do if you are smart is to say, oh, I'm not really smart. (laughs) That's that's fake. Yes, that would be a lie, yes. Um, you are very smart. What you can say is, I don't know why in the DNA cosmic lottery of God's sovereignty I got shuffled out 139 on the IQ scale and somebody else got 82. I can't. Ha- I don't know why that happened, but what I can do is what? I'm going to turn that 139 or whatever it is. Maybe I cheated you. That 171 IQ over to God... And God will take that organic material, that brain, and do what with it? Just 
beat that pride right out of it <laughs> and, and eventually show you how uh, your mind is a wonderful thing and you shouldn't be ashamed of it, but it's a, it's a vehicle by which you can apprehend God and it's not to be thought of as yours. You know, it's a gift. Does that make sense? Okay, so I mean that's I guess good pride. Praises mm-hmm. um. that people give you, but it's not okay when you take those praises and turn them into yourself, which is basically what you said that I did them. Yes, yeah, very good. So I mean, if you really understand the Christian life, you're justified totally by the grace of Christ and his death on the cross. You didn't do anything to deserve it. And the only thing that's going on in sanctification is God's finally getting us to the place where in a nice little soft wrestling hold that God's an expert on. Not, not, not breaking ligaments, but you know, that little pressure that God puts on us to do what? Just do it my way, okay? Just, just bend here. And so eventually we, we say yes, and God gets a little bit more control of us. But even that, I mean, if you're an honest Christian, you're like, uh, I remember Corey Tenboom. she just t- totally changed my life when I heard her speak one time. I mean, everybody thought she was this great saint. Did you ever read her life story? She hated the Nazis. She wanted, when she left that concentration camp, she wanted revenge. She had no, and her sister's like this little Christian saint telling her, now it's up to you to tell everybody about Jesus. And she's like, no way am I going to do that. Did you ever read this? And the, the way that God molded and shaped her, and she, when she would stand up and speak, she, I mean, she knew that it was totally the grace of God that was enabling her to do this, not that she was such a great person. I think that's why God really used her. Yeah. Well, see, now, if you were undergoing this experience, right, and you understood it, then, of course, that's why the New Testament talks about these things called um, uh, spiritual, what, gifts, or uh, spiritualities. That's really what it says in, in Greek. And what they are is simply... When person X, Jerry, Joanne, anyone allows Christ to control them, then there's going to be a manifestation somehow in the way that God has called you and wired you to show Christ. And if you really understand that, then you understand, well, that's not, I mean, I'm letting it happen, but it's not really me. It's Christ doing it through me. Yeah. So what's there to be proud about? Happy. And grateful, but not, I'm better than you. So, now think about this carefully. So, if you're a Christian here today, you learned that <coughs> uh, you are different than not yet Christians. Now, hold on one second. So, what are you going to do with that information? If it's true. You truly are qualitatively different. Okay, there's a, just like anything else, when you have something nice in life, you would like to share it. And think about some of the other things that we're going to have to think about in the 21st century. If, yes, sir? on an earthly level. Well, that's why we should all become Presbyterians. (laughs) Because (laughs) when, when uh, when you finally get down on your knees and you say, God is sovereign, and you embrace that, and you understand what it means, 
not that God causes everything, but that it's all under God's control, then you can legitimately walk away from situations in life and say, um, that's not pleasing to me, and I, I wish, you know, there's part of me that I wish didn't have to go through that, or they didn't have to go through that, but in the end, God's working it all to bring us into conformity to Christ. I don't know how else to do it. There's no formula. I, I go to bed at night and I say, um, you're an idiot and you did X, Y, Z wrong again today. And then I confess that and then I say, and I'm so thankful to God that you're sovereign because if I didn't believe that and I believed it was all on me, or to paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, I pray like everything depends on God and I act like everything depends on me. And when we act and when we fail, then what do you do? Eventually, you even have to bring your failures to the throne of God's sovereignty and say, I don't understand how this works out, but you're working everything together. That's very humbling. Well, yes, I'm sorry, for sure. Now, we, uh, hold on one second. We go one, two. I'm so sorry. Go ahead. Well, yes, and, and as I told you to read C.S. Lewis's section there, he says, you know, life isn't as black and white as we make it out to. There's many people that are slowly becoming Christians, right? They're in the process, and it's not my job to say, come on, speed it up, <laughs> or, or I want to be present when you accept Jesus, so I, you need to do this today. You, we watch people, and, and we observe them, and they're, they're becoming Christians, so we do the best that we can. It's just very important for us, I think, as Christians to understand. When you're dealing with not yet Christians, you have been given a graceful advantage to a certain extent. And that's not, it doesn't make you better, that makes us what? More responsible. So we need to ponder that. Okay, and you get the final one, and then we're going to go on. Go ahead. Now, it actually says pride goeth before a fall. But it's the same construct. That's why Paul says it's a danger to, to be really smart. It also says it's danger to, dangerous to be very good looking. Right? In the Bible? Well, what's the danger there? But it, it says there's danger in being beautiful. And some of you have a double danger in your life. You're beautiful and smart. <laughs> no, it's the world the way we live in. Come on, let's be face it. That's what the Bible's pointing out. If you're really good looking, you're going to get paid attention to. And you're going to get a lot of stuff dragged into your life that if you weren't really good looking wouldn't happen so the same thing happens to people that are really smart it's not their fault but, but eventually God's going to help them deal with it now let's turn the page and get to the ultimate climax here I wish we could go through the whole text but we can't I laid it out if you want to do the study later I want to start at 1512, 1 Corinthians. People in the Corinthian church made an assertion, and Paul writes this whole chapter, including 2 Corinthians 5, along with it, to correct them, to help them, to help them understand. So what's the assertion in 1 Corinthians 15, 12? How is it that some among you say, 
that there is no resurrection. So this is what the core of this whole chapter is. Where did they get this notion? Where is Corinth? Greece. What did the Greeks believe, for the most part, about the next life? Well, the most philosophical of them thought that the body was the prison house of the soul. And the best thing that could happen is to get rid of this decrepit old thing. Anybody agree this morning? So it wasn't like they were being all, you know, anti-God or anything. They just saw the body with all of its problems and difficulties and trying to go this way and that way and the difficulties that we have in controlling our bodies. It's going to be such a relief to get rid of them. So when Paul comes and teaches them about Jesus Christ and pins everything on this one notion, what's the final, ultimate, determinative that says that Christianity and the the religion Jesus started, if you want to look at it that way, is the truth. What, what's the evidence? The resurrection. So we got a big conflict here. Philosophical Christians, and Paul never says they're not Christians. He just says, you've adopted a Greco-Roman Gnostic type of worldview, and you're imposing it upon the Christian faith. And now you're winding up denying that there is going to be a resurrection. Well, now that's a problem from Paul's point of view because, number one, I'm just going to give you the high points of the chapter before we uh, actually get to a text. One problem is if God doesn't raise the dead, then what? Then Christ didn't rise. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then what? Well, then you're not going to get risen from the dead. And what else? He wasn't, he's not who he said he was because he said he was going to die for our sins and rise again. If he didn't rise again, then you have to call into question what? The whole thing. The, whole thing, the death of, for our sins. So Paul says, well, if he didn't rise from the dead, then you're still in your sins. And then he gives the capper that most Christians really, I wish most non-Christians could read this text too. He says, if it's only in this life that Christians are, have hope, then of all people on the earth, we should be the most pitied. Why does he say that? If this is all there is, why should Christians, why should the world be pitying us? (laughs) (laughs) How could I forget? We're giving all that sex up. Yes. Um... There are demands and callings and requirements in the Christian faith that uh, if you're going to get changed into uh, the image of Christ, it isn't just sex, it's like everything, right? (laughs) Might be easy if it was just the sex, but it's everything. The way we look at people, the way we talk to them, everything has to get changed. That's not an easy process, so... Some people don't want to go through it. Okay. So it's essential that this truth is maintained from Paul. So now let's look at the categories or the arguments that he gives. Look with me at verse 20 through 22. What does he call Jesus there? This is, this is his big answer. What's he call him? Okay, so he says, okay, Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first one to rise from the dead. He's the template. He's the first new human. In fact, if, if, if we read Paul without our cultural blinders on, I mean, I think uh, sometimes we'd think he's almost like a new age teacher. What does he call Jesus? The second Adam and the man from heaven. This is the first appearance of a new order of existence. God has come down into humanity, then raised this body, and is now, this is a new type of a human, Jesus in his resurrection body. Okay, so, then he says, okay, in in the big picture, go to the next verse, 24 through 28. Now, I need somebody to help me, somebody that feels strong today. Get that mic and read that for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. You look strong. (laughs) Well, just get the mic and hand it to somebody that looks strong then. 
then comes the end when we when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Keep going. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection under him, it is plain that he is accepted accepted who put all things under him when all things are subjected to him then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things under him that god may be everything to everyone okay or in some translations all in all let me clarify the translation here then shall come the end i know why they translated it that way but the greek word is telos it doesn't mean like the end the second coming of christ isn't the end it's actually what? The beginning. This is the consummation, so get, let's get rid of that. When Christ comes, he's going to do what? What's the whole thesis? Raise everybody and give them a new body and join their spirits, even the ones that are passed on will go through this experience, join their renewed spirits with their new resurrection body and we now have what? A human being that's just like Christ with a new body, a different kind of body. Why do I say that? Now drop down to verses 42 through 49. I gave you the old, but we can pick out the new together. We just have one minute. So the old body, he says, is sown as a perishable body, and it's raised how? Imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. Raised in glory. Sown in weakness. Raised in power. Sown, this is the cool one. Sown a, what's your text say? A natural body, a biological, biological body, an organic body, raised what kind of a body? Spiritual body. What does that mean? A pneumaticos body. Pneuma. Wind, spirit. All the times in the New Testament it talks about the Holy Spirit spiritual gifts. It's this Greek word pneuma. So what's the difference between a pneumatic body and a biological body? It doesn't die because it's not it's not fully organic. In other words, God's going to take the organic stuff of our bodies and do what with it? In the, in the process of the resurrection. It's going to be transformed. It's going to undergo a metamorphosis. It will be changed so that your body will not be the same body that you went to sleep with, that you died with. When you get up, you will have a new body. It will not be subjected to the laws of physics as we understand them because why? It will be a new creation. It will be a supernatural body. So when God brings forth all of these new creations with their new bodies, then we will be able to say at that point, God has done what? Brought forth the process of evolution to its God-ordained goal, which was what? Jesus, the firstborn among many family members, all sharing the same na nature, na same transformed nature, same type of body, to what end? So that God can be all in all. Okay? So that's the evolutionary process that God is taking us through. 
Uh, does it feel like you're undergoing a birth? It should. Yes, Jack. Oh, that's it. Okay. Time to go to church, I guess. <laughs> God bless you. Yes, sir. Well, I'm glad you looked at it a little more carefully. <laughs>